gosh. All right. Well, it is good to be with you all here again. Uh, I think the last time I preached here was about two years ago, and I think this is like my third or fourth time. If, if you don't remember, that's okay. I don't remember. Um, and, and Chris sent me the, the video of your 10-year anniversary. I watched that. That was so cool. Man. So, yeah, about 11 years ago, I can't remember if this happened before the thing you talked about, but uh, Pastor Chris and I met with Don Robinson, who was the associate superintendent at the time, and he was overseeing church plants, and we were, Chris and I, were both embarking on this crazy business of starting a church, and he was doing it right here, obviously, and I was doing it in Montana, and so we both met Don at this coffee shop, I think it was in Mount Vernon. Do you remember this? Yeah. And uh, he asked us to lay out our visions for the church that we wanted to plant. And Chris went first, and he absolutely knocked it out of the park, laying out this wonderful vision for a church that would, well, it's you. It's you. You know exactly what it is. I don't have to tell you. And then Don turned to me, and he said, well, what about you? And I just looked at him and said what he said. I literally said, do you remember that? I literally said that, because I was like, this, yeah. I mean, not that I hadn't thought about it. Um, but yeah, it's a great vision. You are a great church. It's, it's wonderful to be here. This is the first Sunday after Easter, and today, tonight, we're taking a look at a disciple that doesn't get talked about a whole lot, Thomas. And we're going to look at faith and doubt what does it take to believe? What do we do with our doubts? The cornerstone of the Christian faith is this claim. He is not here. He is risen. Jesus, the Son of God, was crucified under Pontius Pilate in Jerusalem nearly 2,000 years ago. He was buried in a nearby tomb. But then that tomb was found to be empty because he had an actual fact returned from the dead. The Apostle Paul even said to the Corinthians, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. How can we believe this? Can we honestly and rationally trust that this is true? and even more that it's worth basing our lives on? Tradition tells us that all of the disciples, except John, gave their lives for this claim. They died for the belief that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, even if we aren't called to lay down our lives like that, how can we believe this story? How can we live our lives with this claim as the cornerstone? How do we deal with our doubts? These are questions that have been around ever since that first Easter. Now, when I was in high school, a friend of mine once said that he couldn't believe someone could call themselves a Christian if they couldn't name the 12 disciples. He wasn't talking to me directly. There was a group of us standing there. But my friends all knew I was a Christian, and so I did my best ninja impression to just blend into the wall and disappear. I knew for sure I could not name all 12 disciples. Can you? Can you do it? Well, does it comfort you to know that in the four Gospels, 
they list the, the, the names of the disciples in different orders. Some of them use different names. The Gospel of John doesn't even have a list of disciples. It talks about the 12, but then he mentions other names of disciples that aren't in the 12. So it's hard to even know. When you think about it, the Gospels don't tell us a lot about these disciples. Some of them are only mentioned as being a disciple and then never mentioned again. Like James, son of Alphaeus. Is that your favorite disciple? Anyone? James, son of Alphaeus. Simon the Zealot, mentioned once, never again. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that's how it is for Thomas. He's just listed as one of the 12 disciples that Jesus set apart and then pretty much forgotten. Actually, totally forgotten. Never mentioned again. You know, the only disciples that really make an impression are Peter. You know, he walked on water. He was always shooting his mouth off. He made a big deal about how he was going to be faithful to Jesus till the end, no matter what happened, and then denied it all immediately. And the other disciple that makes an impression is Judas. But we don't have to get into that right now. So in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we don't learn a single thing about Thomas. Nothing. Nada. But in the Gospel of John, on the other hand, it does give him a few moments in the spotlight, but only a few. The first time we see Thomas, John tells us that he's called Didymus, and both Thomas and Didymus mean twin. So it's possible that these were just nicknames for him, and that we don't actually know his real name. Of course, he has another nickname now, and in fact, it's how he's best known. Not Thomas the twin, but Thomas doubting, doubting Thomas, which is kind of too bad because in the first scene that Thomas shows up in John's gospel, his nickname would have been anything but doubting Thomas. No, it would have been Thomas the Brave. This thing is killing me. Okay. Thomas the Brave. It would have been Thomas the Undaunted or Thomas the Suicidal. Anything but doubting Thomas. See, when he first shows up, it's right after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. And then Jesus tells his disciples that the next thing he is going to do is go back to Jerusalem. And what happens? The disciples freak out. They say, are you crazy? That's, that's a loose translation. But it's what they meant. Why are they so shocked? Because the last time Jesus was in Jerusalem, the Jewish leaders tried to kill him. So the disciples are understandably skeptical that this course of action is a wise one. Getting stoned in Jerusalem is not high on their list of fun things to do. It's not, it's not like around here where, where getting stoned is high on some people's lists. Anyway, that's, what, um, that's, what Tom, that's when Thomas makes his grand entrance. Jesus stands firm. He says they're going to Jerusalem. The disciples are quaking in their sandals, but Thomas, Thomas the brave, says to the rest of them, let us also go so that we may die with him. I have to confess, I'm not sure if he sounds heroic or if it's like he's got a martyr complex. Thomas appears just a few other times in John's gospel. At the Last Supper, he asks Jesus this question. He says, Lord, we don't know where you are going. So how can we know the way? But nobody remembers that it was Thomas who said that. Nobody even remembers the question. 
All we remember is what Jesus said as his answer. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's one more time that Thomas is mentioned in the very last chapter of John after his big doubting scene, which we read today. That final story is when Peter and some of the others, including Thomas, go out fishing. Jesus calls to them from the beach. Peter immediately jumps in the water, swims to shore. Jesus and Peter have their heart to heart. Thomas is only mentioned briefly. That story, as usual, is all about Peter. Now imagine having great success, but only being remembered for your biggest failure, only being remembered for your worst moment. Now think about the most profound confessions of faith in the Bible. The times when we see someone dramatically and wholeheartedly proclaim their faith and trust in Jesus. Now I've run the numbers and I can tell you who the winners are. So here are the top three. The most famous time is when Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. That's number one. Number two, you may remember Mary and Martha and Lazarus. When Lazarus died, his sisters were understandably in great distress, and yet it was then that Martha said to Jesus, I believe you are the Messiah, the son of God who is to come into the world. And finally, there's Thomas, who when he was confronted with the risen Christ, burst out with this utterly pure and simple declaration of faith. My Lord and my God. You know, for centuries after the resurrection of Jesus, the church argued about the nature of Christ. It took centuries of meetings and arguments and debates to hammer it out. Is Jesus fully God? And the question hasn't gone away. Who is Jesus? Who do you say that he is? Here we see Thomas, and I like to imagine him falling on his knees, and he says to Jesus, my Lord and my God. But poor Thomas, he makes one of the most profound declarations of faith in all of scripture, and what do we call him? Doubting Thomas. Man. It's like you win the Boston Marathon, but all anyone talks about is how you tripped at the starting line. Or you graduate at the top of your class with honors, and you give the big speech at commencement, and everyone just shakes their head at that time you failed an algebra test your freshman year. Or maybe closer to home, you have a lovely, wonderful marriage, but your spouse keeps harping on something you did five years ago. We're really good at remembering the bad things the times it all went wrong. We're good at seeing the glass is half empty. Yes, Thomas doubted. It's right there in the scriptures. But more importantly, who is Jesus according to Thomas? My Lord and my God. It's like people think Thomas is the only loser in the Bible who ever doubted. In fact, nothing could be further from the truth. All four Gospels tell us about the disciples, the twelve, doubting, and not just Thomas. Luke tells us that the women who found the empty tomb went and told the twelve all about it, but, he says, they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. They didn't believe. They doubted. 
Mark tells us that after he rose, Jesus appeared to the disciples and he rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he'd risen. And then finally, the one that just blows me away in the Gospel of Matthew. He tells us that after Jesus rose from the dead, when he was with the disciples on the mountain in Galilee, just before he would ascend to heaven, when he's giving them his great commission, telling them to go into all the world and make disciples and baptize people in his name, when he's entrusting the work of God's kingdom on earth to them, entrusting them with the message of the gospel, at that very moment, Matthew tells us, when the disciples saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Some doubted. Not Thomas doubted. Some. How many? More than one, that's for sure. At least a few. Three, four, more? We don't know. But we know this. Some of those first disciples doubted even as they were being commissioned to carry out the work of the kingdom of God. So you know what this means? It means that there's good news for doubters. It means that the gospel is good news for doubters. It means that if you doubt, or maybe better yet, when you doubt, Jesus isn't shocked. Doubt isn't the unforgivable sin. In fact, it's possible to have faith and still deal with doubt. And guess what? Everyone lives their lives with belief, some kind of belief. The idea that we can live our lives with absolute mathematical certainty is an illusion, but more on that in a minute. I recently sent a funny cat video to my daughter. It was great, it was hilarious, and she replied to me and said, I don't think it's a real cat. What does this world come to if you cannot believe that cat videos are, are real? But she's right to be skeptical. We live in an era of fake news, dubious viral videos, internet hoaxes, and yet amid all the chaff, there's real news real viral cat videos that are quite entertaining. And sometimes the truth is indeed stranger than fiction. But it can be hard to sort out. And this problem isn't anything new. Knowing what to believe has never been a simple matter. Conspiracy theorists tell us that the moon landings were faked. The government is trying to kill us with fluoride in the water. And Francis Bacon actually wrote Shakespeare's plays. Even our first president, George Washington, is surrounded by myth and legend. Now, I am confident that George Washington actually did command the American Revolutionary Forces. I believe it's true. I believe he was our first president and that he didn't want to be president for life. But I'll tell you what I don't believe. I don't believe that story about the cherry tree, that he chopped it down and later confessed, I cannot tell a lie. In fact, that moralistic tale about honesty was made up by one of his first biographers, a minister named Mason Locke Weems. There's just too many layers of irony there. And what about his wooden teeth? Well, apparently, the story about his false wooden teeth is false. Now, I do believe that Washington crossed the Delaware. Do we have that picture? This is straight from the source. Washington crossing the Delaware on Christmas night in 1776. If we could get that, or breathe on me, breath of God, that's great too. (laughs) 
Christmas night, 1776, Washington crossing the Delaware to attack the Hessian forces in Trenton. But I'll tell you, that, that American flag, that didn't exist. That's photoshopped. And, uh, and standing like that, he would have fallen out of the boat or capsized the whole thing. Now, it's not hard to believe that George Washington really existed. It's a little harder to believe that someone has risen from the dead. And so Thomas wanted evidence, and lucky for him, he got it. Jesus showed him his hands and his side, and Thomas was convinced. But the fact is, you and I are not given irrefutable evidence. And so if you need absolute certainty, absolute proof before you can believe, before you can commit, before you can say yes to Jesus, you never will. You can't prove mathematically that Jesus rose from the dead. You can't prove it like some sort of theorem. In fact, you aren't promised absolute certainty about anything in this life. You aren't promised a mathematical, irrefutable proof that your spouse will stay faithful or that you will stay faithful, that your kids will turn out well, that your government will spend your tax dollars with righteousness and integrity, that your car will run as long as the manufacturer claims, that your 401k will perform according to the prospectus, that you won't get a terminal disease. I took my parents to a Mariners game recently, and our beloved M's had opened the season with a glorious, magnificent 13-2 record. Remember that? They were beating the tar out of some mediocre teams, but also the Boston Red Sox, the defending world champions. And then the Houston Astros came to town. The Mariners, they'd been tearing the cover off the ball, setting a major league record for consecutive games with a home run to start the season. All sorts of great things were happening, and so my mom texted me a couple days before the game. She said this, can you guarantee a win when we go to the ball game? <laughs> of course not. There are no guarantees in baseball. There are no guarantees in life. And so the Mariners lost, and they lost six games in a row. They lost 15 to 1, or 2, 1 last night, I don't know, 14, oh man, that's terrible. There are no guarantees in baseball, no guarantees in life. Remember Descartes, who said, I think, therefore I am. His method was to doubt everything, and he found that the only thing he couldn't doubt was that he was thinking. But even though he started with doubt, he was looking for something to believe in. But we live in a world that takes doubt and turns it into something to celebrate. Doubt everything. Don't trust anyone. There is no truth. There's just your truth. None of this is new. Pontius Pilate was questioning Jesus when Jesus said, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. To which Pilate replied cynically, what is truth? This doesn't mean that there's no place for doubt. Doubt has its place. It's part of life. Have you ever met someone who believes absolutely everything you tell them? You know, being gullible isn't a virtue. Being naive isn't a good thing. So yes, doubt has its place. It can keep us alive even. Have you ever pulled something out of the fridge 
that looks like maybe it's been there a while, and you, you look it over, you sniff it, and you have your doubts. Better safe than sorry, you throw it away. Doubt can keep you alive. But what about doubts about faith? When you wonder, is this stuff really true? Can I believe this? Can I count on this? What are we to do? How can we believe? How can we be not afraid of doubt, but not glorify it either? There's no doubt about it. It's easier to be a doubter than be committed. It's easier to be cynical than believe. It's easier to hold back, to not get pinned down. It's easier to have an out, an escape clause, a kind of prenuptial agreement in case things don't work out. But that's not what being a follower of Jesus is about. On the road of faith, sometimes you need to deal with the intellectual problems, like is there evidence for the empty tomb? Are the gospels reliable? What are we supposed to do with the parts of the Bible that say things different from other parts of the Bible? Those are questions worth investigating, and I believe that there are good answers to them that we can rely on. Sometimes you need to face the hard theological questions, like the nature of the Trinity, or what to do with the sovereignty of God and human freedom. Sometimes you need to deal with the hard issues of life and wrestle with the, what the Bible says about them. There are no shortage of those. But when it comes down to it, none of those are the central thing. None of those are the main thing. And it's been famously said that the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And what's the main thing? Jesus asks, who do you say I am? That's the main thing. And Thomas tells us his answer today, my Lord and my God. But still the question remains, how are we supposed to believe? How are we supposed to believe without Jesus appearing to us in the flesh so that we can see the scars in his hands and the wound in his side? I kind of wish that I had a super cool, blow-your-mind idea for you, but I don't. I have a very ordinary, unsexy idea for you. And that's good. Because super cool secret answers to life great, life's great mysteries usually turn out to be snake oil. How are we supposed to believe? John tells us right here at the end of the story. He says, these are written. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. How can you encounter Jesus and know him? Through these words. Through the testimony that has been recorded and handed down. It's that simple and it's that profound. Sure, you can, you can search out mystical experiences, you can look for gurus, you can seek out super special secret knowledge, but God has seen fit to make himself known through the completely ordinary, utterly mundane, everyday medium of these words on a page preserved for you. I've had a mystical experience or two. It's true. I've had times when I could feel the presence of God's Spirit in a particular and powerful way. It's wonderful. I've had times when I knew exactly what God was saying to me personally at a particular moment in time. 
I've had times when I knew exactly what to pray and I felt the Holy Spirit within me. But guess what? Those experiences and those times are not the bedrock of my faith. I love how the the book of Hebrews puts it. This is the opening verses of Hebrews. It says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. God has spoken to us through his Son. And these gospels that we have here, these letters, this New Testament, this is the record of the people who have encountered him and had their lives transformed by him. And it's through their testimony that we believe. And it's how we can encounter Jesus personally. Maybe you have legitimate doubts about God, or the Bible, or the resurrection. I've dealt with doubts as long as I can remember. In fact, I can be very skeptical. But the real challenge to my faith isn't all the intellectual issues. The real challenge is comfort. It's pleasure. The world says indulge. It says focus on yourself, on your own interests, on your own dreams and desires. It says following Jesus is too hard. It's too narrow-minded. It's old-fashioned. It's boring. When doubt starts gnawing at me, whispering in my ear, keeping me up at night, I'm I'm reminded of another passage from this Gospel of John. And it was a time when some of Jesus' disciples started giving up on him. His teaching was too hard, the way seemed too narrow, and John tells us from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. You have the words of eternal life. Where else would we go? That is where I find comfort. Jesus didn't kick Thomas Thomas out of the club. doubting. He doesn't give up on us when we doubt. Yes, he does say, stop doubting. Don't indulge it. Don't coddle it. Don't let doubt be your God. We can believe our doubts too much. We can give them too much power, and that's the road to despair. You know, I'm thankful that being a follower of Jesus isn't about having all the right answers to a laundry list of Bible trivia questions. It's not about being able to name the 12 disciples or all 66 books of the Bible in order. Any more than being able to name all 50 state capitals makes you an American. And it doesn't mean never having doubts. No, being a follower of Jesus, being a Christian, means following Jesus. 
It means knowing him through his word, through this word, revealed to his people, preserved for us. It means believing and staking our lives on the fact that Jesus is who he said he is. And as Thomas put it, Thomas the brave, Thomas the believer, Jesus, you are my Lord and my God. Amen.